What a great way to begin our time in the Word of God to sing those words that history's final page has been written. That God will send His Son and end this time of night. What a great thought that is as we begin our time. Would you just bow with me one more time as we offer our time to the Lord and ask Him to attend to us? Lord, we... We believe you are with us. We know that you have given us your spirit to indwell us who have believed upon your son. We know that the spirit helps us understand through the illumination mystery that takes place as we open your word together. We understand that you know what you said and you know what you mean by what you said. And we need to understand that so that we know you more. So thank you for supernaturally intending, uh, attending to us as your children and giving us your word and giving us the ability through the Spirit to understand what is here. May it have an impact upon us so that we might be servants worthy of Honor not for us, but honor for you. That you would receive glory through our witness and testimony. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Luke chapter 1. Some of you are probably already there, knowing that we would be returning there this morning. We are, of course, returning to the accounting of the miraculous conception of both the forerunner to Jesus Christ and the miraculous conception of Jesus himself as God has proclaimed they would happen. As God has proclaimed they would happen. And that is really how it ought to be, isn't it? It needs to be that way. All of this that we are involved with in our study of the Gospel of Luke, all of this is just as God has proclaimed it would happen. Because without Him, none of this takes place. All that we have heard of and all that we have seen through the writing of the Dr. Luke, who has given us this history of Jesus Christ coming, is absolutely, in fact, when you think about it on a human level, it is unbelievable. From every human way of explanation, there is no earthly way for two considerably old people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, there is no way for them to naturally conceive a child, especially in the womb that has been barren since it was created by God himself. And of course, we all instinctively understand the impossibility of a woman becoming pregnant without the normal relations or seed of a man. And even in our own day, A woman cannot become pregnant without the intervention of science, which even implants the seed of a man in a woman from time to time. So a virgin, nor those who are in their advanced years of life, have children. 
Therefore, both of these events are miraculous. They have been brought about through the divine intervention of God as He has altered the normal course of His creation so that these two women would be with child at this time. And of course, as we've been studying through this, and we have said over and over again, all of this would be unbelievable had not the angel Gabriel said to us back in verse 37, as he was speaking to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. It seems as if God shouldn't have to tell us that, and yet God does tell us that. Because that's oftentimes where we default. We default to, this can't be happening. This is impossible. There's no way this could be. This is just fable. It is fiction. No, nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, anything naturally unexplainable becomes explainable when the supernatural power of God is taken into account. Oh, it would be nice if evolutionists would realize that. Oh, it would be nice to look at the Grand Canyon as an evolutionist and say to yourself, well, this is impossible, but wait a minute, God, there is nothing impossible with God, and therefore this could happen in a moment's time as God decided it to happen. The naturally unexplainable becomes explainable when the supernatural power of God is taken into account. Hebrews chapter 11 says, We know the worlds were made from nothing because of faith, because God was doing it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 becomes impossible unless it says, In the beginning God created Now, I've entitled this message this morning, The Birth of John, An Undeniable Work of God. An Undeniable Work of God. Why, you may ask, did I entitle it that way? I, I struggle at times with titles. I'm not the most creative title person. But I've entitled that it that way because each and every event that we see unfold in the Gospel of Luke, has a whole lot of facets working their way through it, a whole lot of players involved in each and every event and each and every picture that we will see going through the Gospel of Luke. And each and every one of them, while there are all these details happening and all these things going on and we're trying to gain an understanding of what's taking place, all that is told there is the ultimate point of all of them is that God is being highlighted. God is being highlighted. For example, in just the first chapter, we have heard of Theophilus, the friend that Luke is writing to in order that he may know for sure what he has been taught. We have encountered the angel Gabriel as he was dispatched by God in two separate occasions to go to both Zacharias and to Mary and to give them these miraculous messages. We have seen what has taken place with Zacharias and Elizabeth after the message was given. And of course, we have seen now what has happened 
in the miraculous conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary. Now, there's a whole lot of details about each one of those events and details about each one of those people, and each event is filled with intrigue and filled with sights and sounds and smells and things that we may not usually focus on, but they're here for us in order to give us detail. And yet, while all of those participants are involved in those events, the actual one being highlighted in each and every one of them is God. In other words, He is the one that Luke intends for us to see. It is His character that is on display. It is His nature that we see being carried out. And therefore, each and every one of these events is actually about God. It's actually about Him. Gabriel's message highlights the reality of where the action for these events comes from. Remember what he said? Gabriel is the one who, I'm, I stand in the presence of God, he said to Zacharias. Zacharias was not believing what was going on, and Gabriel said, listen, in verse 19, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. In other words, it is God who is the source of this message. It is God who is the source of its accomplishment. This isn't about me coming to you, Zacharias. This is about God. And so that is what takes place. That's what takes place with Mary. That's what takes place with Elizabeth. And all of it is by the hand of God because nothing is impossible with God. It may seem impossible, it may seem outlandish, it may seem humanly crazy, it may seem, in fact, fairy tale legend. But none of that is true because the supernatural God has broken his silence. He has intervened upon human history at the very moment that he had planned in eternity past to intervene. So that what is happening at this very moment is the very act of God on display. And I remind us of that because in our text this morning, the evidence is no different. It is no different. This is actually about God. Now you'll read a little sub-note in your Bible, probably because it's separated like mine is, where it has bold lettering there, and it says, John is born You probably have that in your Bible. That's not inspired. That's not part of the original text of the Scripture. That's put there so that we understand what's going on by way of the framework and the vignette and this narrative history that we're reading here. But this is actually about God. It is not about John. In fact, this section begins and ends with words that focus our attention on that very fact. Let me just begin by reading this text for us will be in verses 57 to 66 this morning. Luke writes, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it came about that on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. 
And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. They made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call him. He asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. They were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came upon all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Now, as we look at this section this morning, I I want to direct our attention to four ways in which we see the undeniable hand of God at work. Four ways that we see the undeniable hand of God at work. There are probably many more ways that even as you look through this and you read it yourself, you could write down a whole host of ways in which we see God's work on display. But I just want to highlight four of them for us. In the first place, we see the undeniable hand of God at work through the actual birth of John, through the actual birth of John. Notice that our text begins with these words. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. That is not simply for us by way of a nice historical writing and Luke's writing of history. That's not simply a grammatical indicator for us as to now this is sufficient time has gone past and it's time to move on in the story and we're moving to the next section. That's not what that's there for. Certainly it helps us do that and that's why you have that bold print there because the translators of your Bible put that there in order that you might know. There's a a movement in in the whole timeline here and certainly that's helpful for us, but that's not necessarily or primarily why it's there. These words are there to show us that it is God who is at work in this. It is God doing what God said. Henceforth, the reason they conclude at the end of verse 66, for the hand of the Lord is certainly with him. This is bookended by that reality that God is doing this. Why? Because this is exactly what God said would happen. In other words, isn't transitioning from verse 56 to 57 in the story in Luke's mind simply because it's a transitional period? No, this is happening because this is exactly what God said would happen. In other words, the Lord God is doing what He said He would do. You remember what happened earlier? Remember what happened earlier in this narrative passage, Mary had gone down to Judea. She had left now to go and see Elizabeth. Remember, she had received word from Gabriel, the angel, that she would become with child. She was told that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her, that she would become pregnant, that she would be bearing a child, and she realized that her pregnancy was not going to be easily believed by others around Certainly even Joseph, as we know, he wanted to get rid of her, Matthew tells us. 
But there was someone who would understand her condition and understand her situation. There was at least one person whom she was told about that was also bearing a child that had been granted to her by God through a conception miracle. It wasn't something that just would have come ordinarily. And so when Mary is informed of her cousin Elizabeth that she is pregnant by the power of God, Mary immediately goes to see her, and both of them are encouraged in their faith. We saw that, that fellowship together is an encouragement of faith. And Mary stays with her for three months. She was told about Elizabeth's pregnancy in Elizabeth's sixth month, and now she stayed there three months. And so we are told that she left in the ninth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy to go back home. That's what verse 56 tells us. Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. We don't know all that was involved in that decision. We're not given all the background details as to what went on between Elizabeth and Mary, and they're chatting about that and why Mary chose at that moment to go and to head back home. It may have been that she didn't want to see a whole bunch of people now that she was in her third month of pregnancy. Certainly she would have begun to show. Maybe she didn't want to see all these people who would be coming to see Elizabeth upon the birth of this son. She wasn't married yet. She certainly would have had a hard time explaining, at least to some, how she would have become pregnant. She and Joseph were not married yet. There's no textual reason here, at least in the text, to believe that Mary was there for the birth. I mean, we could assume that, but, but that's just that. It's an assumption. There's nothing here in the text, nothing in the mind of Luke, nothing in the writing of Luke that indicates clearly that Mary was there. It even says in verse 56, she stayed with her about three months. We don't know if that was up until the time of birth or not. And then the text simply picks up where it left off with Zacharias and Elizabeth back in verse 25 and 26. So there's this play going on. Luke is writing both stories together as they interact together. And notice, notice in verse 57, we don't get any detail about the birth. It's very generic. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. That's all it says. We don't get any details about, hey, this kid was this size. He was six pounds, eight ounces, 21 inches long. Mother and the baby are doing fine. You know, that's what we hear sometimes when somebody has a child. We don't get any of those details. Nothing's here. Luke is a doctor and he doesn't give us any of that. But what we do get is exactly what God would have us know. What is that? It is this, that God does what he says. God does what he says. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. Nothing else needs to be said about the birth moment except that. That is all God wants us to know about the birth. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. Remember how she got pregnant? It was a miraculous conception. God had intervened. And so all it needs to tell us is just that. It's time for Elizabeth to give birth. In other words, God does what he says. In other words, this is undeniably God's work. 
The Bible tells us, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23 tells us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says that it is in fact impossible for God to lie. I always love that little kid riddle that sometimes is played by kids and even adults where they say, is there anything God cannot do? Right? Can God make a rock bigger than he could carry? You know, people try to use those silly jokes. Well, there are certain things God cannot do. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. God cannot go against his very nature, his very character. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, declares of God, your word is truth. Your word is truth. That is simply to say that when God speaks, he always speaks that which is true and that which will come to pass. This is why Jesus could confidently say, as he was ministering on the earth, not one jot or tittle will pass away until all of this is fulfilled. There will be nothing in the Word of God that will not find its full fulfillment. God had said through the angel Gabriel to Zacharias, listen, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call him John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice with you. Say, really? He said that? Yeah, go back to verses 13 and 14. This is exactly what he said. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Zacharias had been praying for this for a long time. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will give him the name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Well, what do you know? That's exactly what the Holy Spirit through Luke says happened. Verse 57, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she brings forth a son. Notice that? And she brought forth a son. Notice verse 58. And they were rejoicing with her. The angel had said, from God you will have a son, and many will rejoice with you, and that is precisely what happens. And so while here we are, the birth of John, it is undeniably a work of God, because while this tells us of all these people that are involved in this event, what we need to know is something about God. What we need to realize about God is that He does what He says. God is reliable. God is reliable. Did you think about that this morning when you woke up? You looked at yourself in the mirror when you thought about the struggles of last night, the details of the coming week, what's happening in our world, the things that are taking place. Did you, did you think about 
that truth, God is reliable. God is reliable. The time has come. What God has declared is actually happening, Luke says. The forerunner of the Messiah is born. The nine months of anticipation are now over. A son is born. The Word of God is taking place in action. And rejoicing is happening because God said that will happen. In other words, this is exactly as Gabriel had said. God was doing what he said. God is reliable. This is undeniably the work of God because God is reliable. God is doing what he said. Secondly, secondly, this is the undeniable work of God because it is an act of God's mercy. It is an act of God's mercy. Notice, notice that when the people came, they rejoiced. Why? They rejoiced because they heard that the Lord had displayed mercy toward her. You notice that? Verse 58, And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. The reason they were rejoicing is because they understood the mercy of God in all of this. All of this was an act of God's mercy. It was God's favor. It was His kindness. That's simply to say that God didn't have to do this. God didn't have to condescend to men in order to carry out this reality. God could have in the divine wisdom of his very nature and character, just crinkled up the paper on the sin of Adam and Eve and started over again, but he did not. God chose to save because God is a merciful God. And his mercy is his loving action being carried out to undeserving people. They're recognizing the reality of God's mercy. We read this morning Psalm 52. And we saw in Psalm 52 by the very words of the psalmist, God by nature is loving kindness. This is who He is. This isn't simply things He does. This is who He is. The Old Testament word for loving kindness is the word hesed. Hesed. It's part of God's nature. He acted towards Zacharias and Elizabeth with loving kindness, even though they were undeserving of his loving kindness. Mary knew about that herself. In fact, I think God even indicates that to Zacharias in verse 13, when the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. God was expressing his merciful answer to Zechariah's prayer simply because he is merciful. Mary knew about the mercy of God. Remember, she celebrated God's mercy in the words that she spoke to Elizabeth. Not just his mercy to her, but she declared 
His mercy is upon generation after generation. Where there's mercy, there's grace. Where there's mercy, there is grace. In fact, later on in this very accounting of the birth of John, we'll hear Zacharias praise God. And notice in verse 72, he says, to show mercy toward our fathers. Who's that? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says in verse 68. Because he's showing mercy toward our fathers. He's remembered his holy covenant. Notice verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. Listen, beloved, this this is where we live as believers, is it not? We, We live in mercy. We live in the realm of mercy. When the people realize that God has been merciful, that God has shown great favor to them, then they know that it is upon them. And when they know His mercy is upon them, this is what causes the heart of man to to just melt in repentance before a holy God. This is what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says. It is the kindness of God that causes us to repent. It isn't that God lavishes upon us all of these great things and we go, oh gee, He's such a great God. Look at all the lavishness He has given us. No, it's the fact that out of His loving kindness and mercy, we aren't crushed for what we deserve. When you realize that God's wrath rests upon you if you do not know Jesus Christ because of your sin. When you realize His mercy is there holding back and restraining the very outpouring of His wrath upon you, that's what kindness of God you realize, and that draws you to repentance. Elizabeth knew the favor of God. It was on display And she talked about it because they were hearing about it. She talked about God's mercy upon her, and others heard her talk about it, and they shared in her joy. And the fact that they rejoiced in the mercy of God was an undeniable fact that God was at work. That this was the work of God. This was not the work of just nature taking its course. God is reliable, God is merciful. Third, third, this is the undeniable work of God because of the baby's name. Because of the baby's name. Notice verses 59 to 63. And it came about on the eighth day. They came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. His mother answered and said, No, indeed, that he shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. So here we are. The birth has happened. God is reliable. God does what he says. Now it's the eighth day. Eight days later after the birth, it's time 
to fulfill obedience to the law of Moses, to have the male child circumcised. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 12, God specifies to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that all Hebrew males were to be circumcised eight days after birth. So on the eighth day, all of Zacharias's and Elizabeth's relatives gather around for the occasion. This was a big event. It was a big occasion. There was a, a major celebration happening here as this child is bringing into the covenant, the sign of the covenant of the people of God. It would obligate him to live under the law of God. It would show him to be officially part of God's chosen people. And of course, it was during this time that often the naming of the child would take place. So Luke tells us in verse 59, and they were going to call him Zacharias. The they there is the collective group, the family of relatives and friends that are around him, the neighbors and relatives who had heard of all of this. They had all gathered together. The circumcision is about to happen on this eighth day. And they're going to call him what you would normally call a son, a firstborn son. He would normally be called after a relative. It was customary at the time. You normally named your firstborn son after a close relative, normally a grandfather or a father. And so it's normal here that they begin to call him little Zach. It's what he is. To them, in their minds, this is, this is little Zach. This is his name. This is what his name's to be. It's a nice gesture. But it's all wrong. Elizabeth has to let them know. And she lets them know with emphasis. His mother answered and said, No, indeed. No, indeed. He shall be called John. By the way, that's a very strong negative in the original language. It's almost like she's saying, Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. I mean, with Zacharias ain't able to talk at the time, you might have thought that there was some kind of marital issue going on, and she's saying, Oh, no, you're not having him named after that guy. She was emphatic about it. Don't even think about calling him Zacharias. He shall be John. What? What are you talking about? Shock. Everybody's shocked about this. Are you kidding me? They're so shocked that they even say, there's no one even among your relatives who's called by that name. Listen, there's no John in your family line. What are you talking about, John? Of course, none of them knew what Gabriel had told Zacharias in the temple. None of them knew all of that. We can assume simply that Zacharias, over the previous nine months, as he and his wife were interacting in their own home, Zacharias tried to scratch out on his tablet as much as he could about what was said to him. You can be sure that Elizabeth and Mary spoke about what had taken place, at least what Elizabeth knew of what took place with Zacharias, and Mary certainly told her what would, had taken place with her. Even Mary would have shared the son of her to be named son, with Elizabeth, as Elizabeth, I'm sure, would have told her what his name was to be. 
And so the relatives, they're just perplexed about all of this. And so they continue on. There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And so they make signs to his father, what he wants to call them. They're, they're doing what the rest of us do. Well, let's ask this guy. We know he can't talk, but let's try to get some way where he can do it. And they're tapping him on the shoulder. He's not hearing everything that's going on, remember? He can read faces, but he certainly doesn't know what's said. So they give him a tablet. Typically at those times, it wasn't stone and a chisel. He could have had wax on some kind of parchment and would have took a sharp stick and wrote in the wax. And the wax was nice because you could erase whatever was there and overuse it over and over and over again. That's probably what he did. So they make signs to him. What's he going to be called? He asks for his tablet. And he writes as follows. His name is... John. His name is John. Notice Zacharias doesn't say his name will be John. Notice he doesn't say that. The grammar doesn't indicate that at all. He simply says his name is John. Why? Why does he say it that way? Because there aren't the ones, Zacharias and Elizabeth aren't the ones naming this son. They're not the ones who are naming him. God already has named him. In other words, we're not doing anything here. We're not naming this child. His name is John. He came out with a name. God has given this child a non-family name. I think that sends us a message. I think that tells us something. What's it tell us? Well, first of all, God is showing that John's mission and message are outside of his natural birth. He's, he's not carrying on the family mission and the family message. He, he's not doing that. It's outside of natural order. In other words, there's nobody that could point to John and go, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously he's doing what he's doing. He's the son of Zacharias. That's just little Zach. Nobody can say that. This is John. He's so unlike them in every way. But I think secondly, because of what his name means. What his name means. John means God of grace. God of grace. Or or really, the Lord has given grace. John is just a shorter version of the longer name, Jehohanan. Jehohanan. The first part of Jehohanan is Jeho, which is the first part of the word for God, Jehovah. Jehovah. Hanan is just the other part of Jehohanan, and that means grace. So you have God of grace. That's John's name. So God names this child, God is gracious. God is gracious. Why? Because God's purpose through John and through Jesus would be to proclaim his grace. To proclaim his grace. 
So this is an undeniable work of God because God does what He says. He's reliable. It's an undeniable work of God because this is an act of God's mercy. God is merciful. It's an undeniable work of God, thirdly, because of the baby's name. God is gracious. God is gracious. And lastly, it's an undeniable work of God because of the result. Because of the result. Notice what happens in verse 64 through the end. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came upon all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind saying, What then will this child be? Because the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. I love just these last few verses, how many times you hear the word all going on. It's all of those, and it's all of these things, and it's all these words, and everything, all things were being spoken about, and all, 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 all. I mean, this had a massive effect. This had a massive effect. All of those who were present had already had their senses, their senses shocked by just the naming of this child. They were astonished, it said. They were amazed. But the astonishment, the shock wasn't over. Again, God does what He says, right? Zacharias' disbelief brought about his condition. He, is, he can't talk, he can't hear. God said it would happen, and He said it would happen until these things were complete. This wouldn't be remedied until all of this came to pass, and here God is doing what He said, and now exactly what God says is happening again, and Zacharias is once again able to hear and speak. The first words out of his mouth are not a recounting of what happened to him. The first words out of his mouth are not, man, I've got to find a publisher, write a book, sell these books to a lot of people because, man, they're never going to believe it unless it's out there. It isn't to get on his ancient Facebook page or Twitter feed or whatever it is and begin to spread it around so that everybody hears of what happened to him. None of that is on his mind. The first thing out of his mouth is what? Worship. Worship. At once his mouth is opened and his tongue loosed. And he begins to speak in praise of God. Zacharias has been silent for nine months. I'm sure he's had a lot of nights to think about what he might say because he's the only one who knows that his mouth is going to be unloosed at some point. Mary or Elizabeth, I'm sorry, hurry up and have that kid because when that kid's born, this is going to end. And the first thing he does is worship God. What comes out of him is worship for what God has done and for what God will do. In fact, we get a glimpse into what was on his heart and mind and what was going to be said at the beginning of verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. 
That was the praise of God. That's the, the first words that came out of his mouth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Zacharias has heard the truth. Zacharias knows the truth. Zacharias has personally felt the truth. And he has seen the truth in action. And his response to all of that is to do what naturally comes upon a person who hears, knows, experiences the truth in their life. What do they do? They praise God. They praise God. You hear of God, you know God, you experience the truth of God in your life, and guess what you, your heart wants to do? It just wants to praise God. Everything else fades into the background. Why? Because of who God is and what He's done. God has done it all. Zacharias is saying exactly what Gabriel has said and exactly what Elizabeth knows and Mary knows. Listen, this isn't about us. It isn't even about this child in my womb. This is about God. This is about God. What's the final result of all of that? What what happens with all of that? Verse 65 and 66, And fear comes upon all those living around, and all these matters are being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind. That's what happens. All of this brought about a community-wide reverential fear of God. Notice that? This isn't just a few people. This is community-wide. Fear came upon all those living around them. So in their close proximity, in the little neighborhood they were in, and all these matters are being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. Now it's out a little farther. Now it's in the community. All the areas and all who heard them, which is all those people, kept these things in their mind. And they were saying to themselves, they're pondering the truth. They're pondering what took place. They're pondering the experience of the truth that they've seen happen with Elizabeth and Zacharias. And they're asking themselves, then what will this child be? You know what that's saying? It's saying that they knew that this was an undeniable work of God. They knew that. The whole region is having conversations about what God did to these people. And it caused them to have a spiritual reflection about themselves. Look what God did to them. What does that mean for me? What then will this child be? This is obviously an act of God. Then what must that mean for me? This was obviously God doing His work. God intervening in humanity. Then what must that mean for me? It just wasn't a passing thought. They kept on thinking of this. He kept on thinking about that. If John, if God has intervened in humanity and this is an act of God upon these people, which clearly that is, then what must that mean for me? And all 
this would set the stage. All of this going on sets that stage for the day when John begins to preach repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. What's this child going to be? And John grows up and begins to preach and says, you need to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. You want to know what that means for me? That means you need to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. They laid all of this up in their hearts. Why? Because they knew. They knew the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So it says in verse 66, they were thinking about it. They were pondering it. They were watching. They were looking at this child. They were wondering about his name. They were wondering about what took place. They know Zacharias had a miracle happen. They know Elizabeth was pregnant because of God's handiwork. They knew the hand of the Lord was with him. This was an undeniable work of God. So we can look at this passage and we can read it and we can analyze the details and we can analyze the syntax and we can analyze all the details that flow within it and the noises and the sounds and all of those kinds of things and we come away with the same thing. God does what He says. God does what He says. The Bible says that if you don't believe upon Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on you. God does what He says. The Bible says, but if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth that He is God, that He was, that He died and He rose again, you will be saved. God does what He says. Why? Because He's merciful, gracious. He's seeking to save the lost. When the people hear of this, they ponder it. When they ponder it, they begin to fear. They begin to fear Him who is to come, knowing that His kindness is that which draws them to repentance. This is not about John. This is about Jesus Christ, the one to come who is God in the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, certainly there's many more details about your very nature and character that are here in this text that we could focus upon. But that which you have given to us this morning is enough for us. We know that you are reliable, trustworthy, that you always do what you say. And that your word tells us that if we would believe upon your son, Jesus Christ, we would be saved. And if we will not, we will be judged. Not fantasy. Not hyperbole. Not some kind of fable. 
was not made up by men. Your word, just as if it came from the throne room, your very presence delivered by an angel. It is the truth, and you will do what you said. And so we are even more grateful because of that reality for your mercy, that you are a God of mercy. As you brought about the reality whereby the forerunner would come, preparing the way for the people to hear the gospel truth that believing in Jesus Christ is the only way to be in your presence. And as we will see, your word was fulfilled as Jesus came. The God-man, fully human, yet without sin, would live that perfect life, die an undeserved death, that all who would believe would be saved. So gracious, so merciful. We thank you that you are a God of grace. Lord, I pray that this morning that these words we've heard would cause us to fear, cause us to have that reverent awe for you and who you are, and that those in this room who do not know you would see your kindness, turn in repentance, recognizing their unworthiness before you, and that those of us who do know you by faith in Christ would continue to proclaim it with clarity, boldness, knowing that it's only in the name of Jesus Christ that there is salvation. Let us never fear for the wrong reasons, but only for what is right, a reverent awe for you. We'll thank you in the end for the results, whatever that may be, that you might receive all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.